well, I want to finish up uh, the nature of the church that we began last week. Uh, we got down through uh, Grudem's comments about uh, questions about the exact way in which biblical prophecies about the future will be fulfilled are in the nature of the case difficult to decide with certainty and it is wise to have some tentativeness in our conclusions on these matters on page 368 and uh, that segues into key passages that support the church as a new Israel we said that <clears throat> There are um, theological perspectives, anyway, of the interpretation of the Bible that put uh, Israel on the track, this geopolitical entity, nation, and then the church on the track, at least. Um, Actually, that's probably not a fair representation right there. Let's do this this way. You got Israel in the Old Testament. Then you've got the church uh, coming from here, and Israel stops at what, 70 AD and then resumes over here in the uh, future. So there are some uh, theological positions that, that hold to that. Um, and I think that it's much more accurate to look at Israel as being the people of God. As they were constituted in the Old Testament. And that... This moves into the New Testament where it takes on a different uh, term, but actually the same term is used if you were to look at the Greek Testament of both the Old Testament and New Testament. They would use the same word, ecclesia, the called out ones. Um, and so church, again, is the people of God. Okay. Called out ones of the Old Testament are called out to put their trust, their faith in, in God uh, based upon uh, his um, plan. He used the Old Testament sacrifice which pointed ahead to Christ. And, and so the same, it's the same program. You know, it's the same plan that God's using and to call out a people for himself. The geopolitical nation of Israel in the Old Testament foreshadows the church moving forward, but it's more <clears throat> symbolic than anything else. When God uh, made a covenant with Abraham, said, I'm going to make of you a great nation, when you get to the New Testament, you get into Romans, Paul says that not all who are in the, the body of Christ, the spiritual Israel, you know, are necessarily descendants of the physical Israel. And so he makes a distinction uh, between them. So the, the people of God were in this body, in this political unit, in this, in this uh, physical group, 
but not all Israel was redeemed, right? Mm -hmm. In the New Testament, uh, we see the same thing taking place except without, without the, um, the physical shell, if you will, uh, called Israel now. And I think that's a better representation of what Scripture is giving us. Um, but this up here, you get into more of the physical promises, you know, the land and, and all those things that you have to make plans for for the future as a way to reconcile all this. So it, it becomes a little bit contrived uh, if you're not careful. And I told you that dispensationalism really hit the map in the 1800s uh, with the uh, uh, John Darby and uh, hit America not long after that and went through the Pres Presbyterian Church in St. Louis, which is an odd thing. Uh, because Presbyterians typically are not dispensational in their perspective of things. But uh, James Brooks was the name of the guy that was pastoring uh, in St. Louis that really became a hub for dispensationalism in America. And that's where you get a lot of this. We, there's, there's multiple um, ideas, I guess, or positions if you, if you had this as a pure dispensational view, I told you last week, and then you've got a progressive dispensationalism that we're seeing more and more become the norm, uh, which is much more moderated, uh, which means that in progressive dispensationalism, Israel is seen as, uh, or the, the church is seen as the new Israel. These are on the same, the same path, much like it is down here. Uh, but they still adhere to some of these future promises and fulfillments uh, pertaining to the land and things of that nature. But this is much closer uh, to this viewpoint. And then you get into, I don't know, I don't remember them all. You get in and ultimately you get into covenant theology which I have a lot of empathy for. I'm not sure that I agree with all of it, but the truth of the matter is there's wiggle room on some of these things. Um, this one I think you can pretty much discount. Uh, even places like uh, Dallas Theological Seminary that's been um, very strong in dispensationalism has moderated that view to more of a progressive dispensationalism as, as time moves on and that's probably more you want to know about those things. I haven't agreed with Dr. Walford on this progressive dispensationalism. Dr. John Walford, what did he say? He was the past president of Dallas Seminary. Right. Blast and then, of course, Daryl Bach started progressive dispensationalism. Right. And I and he and Dr. Walford calls it a slippery slope, and I agree with him. I think dispensationalism as opposed to progressive dispensationalism is better. First of all, I think that Lason and Bach had in mind trying to make it a connection with covenant theology, which I disagree with. Anyway, I just thought I'd mention that. I think it's yeah. a real slippery slope. Well, that's the problem is you get a lot of these, but the truth of the matter is, is that the people of God in the Old Testament have become the people of God in the New Testament. They're on the same track. There's not two separate entities. It just it doesn't make sense. 
to say that, that God is calling out people to himself and he's doing it in different ways. Christ is the only way through which that occurs. Uh, scriptures that support this, uh, Romans 2, 28 and 29, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not the letter. So clearly the true Jew is one who is changed inwardly by grace, not necessarily a physical descendant of Abraham. Romans 4, 11 and 12 he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who, all, who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Uh, Romans 4, 16 and 18, that's why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he has been told, so shall your offspring be. And in Romans 9, 6 through 8, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And you find uh, Ephesians 2 verses 11 through 22 uh, is another great text that talks about uh, the separation there and how Christ has brought about uh, a people for his own name, a people called out. Uh, the marks of the church, distinguishing characteristics of the church. There are true churches, there are false churches. So what makes a church a church? Anybody want to take a shot at that? What makes a church a church? Tax exempt status. <laughs> I think that's the other way. I think it's the other way around. I feel like I read last week that a true church practices the ordinances and baptism and the Lord's Supper. That's right. Um, both Luther and Calvin said that the uh, to know that a church was an authentic church is that it needed to um, rightly. Needed to rightly proclaim the Word of God and needed to um, rightly observe the sacraments, or we would say ordinances. Sacraments uh, sometimes for us has a connotation because of the Roman Catholic Church that uh, they would see the sacraments as something that conveys or gives grace. In other words, they become the mechanism through which people are saved. Um, but for Luther and Calvin, sacraments pointed more to uh, what we know as the ordinances uh, that, that the church was instructed to keep. But these are really the two things that both of them said 
define whether a church was a true church or a false church. What do they do with the Word of God, and what do they do with the ordinances? You know, they follow those, and you know, and you can see where this went. If you're talking about the Reformation, and they're reforming against what the background of the Roman Catholic Church, where the sacraments were not rightly administered, um, where they believed that the the bread and the cup actually became the blood and the body of Christ as you took it in. Um, that's not right. That's not what the scripture teaches about the sacraments. Same thing with uh, baptism. The baptism, the Roman Catholics believe that, Rome, that uh, baptism actually is regenerative, that it regenerates someone, that that causes them to be saved. Uh, we wouldn't agree with that. And so they were saying that to be a true church, you had to administer the sacraments correctly, and you have to preach the word of God faithfully and rightly. And that there was only two compared to the Roman Catholic belief there's seven. Yeah. Well, that's yeah why they went simply with rightly. Um, the Augsburg Confession, Luther said, the congregation of saints in which the gospel is rightly taught and the sacraments rightly administered, Calvin, wherever we see the word of God purely preached and heard and the sacraments administered according to Christ's institution, there it is not, uh, it is not, be, it is not to be doubted a church of God exists. Well, that's in Calvin's Institutes. The Roman Catholic Church says the visible church that descended from Peter and the apostles is the true church. So you, you get the big difference there, right? Um, that uh, whoever has this system that is called the church and all of the traditions that go with it for the Roman Catholics becomes the evidence of true church rather than uh, what, what uh, pertains to the word of God or the, uh, the sacraments. In fact, you're talking about the sacraments and being administered correctly. You know, when they celebrate the mass, I mean, what are they doing? They're crucifying Christ again. I mean, it, it is a, a reenactment of the crucifixion is what it is. And so every time they get together, they, again, reenact the Mass. So for them, what Christ said on the cross, it is finished, is not true. They continue to try to move forward because it's, it's based on works. It's based on works and not grace. Same thing's true uh, if, if the sacraments become saving, then they become a work. <clears throat> so what is the right preaching of the word? What does that mean? Well, it means that we teach true doctrines of faith, the true tenets. We seek to discover what what the Word of God is saying and uh, make sense of it, understand it as it is, and proclaim it. We don't, we don't, we don't uh, harp on political messages. We don't harp on opinions. It's not my place to give opinions. We don't um, teach false doctrines. You know, what would be a false doctrine? Well, I'll, I'll take a real outlandish one, okay? If you look into the very end of the Gospel of Mark, We'll do that so that we don't hit anybody's hot button tonight. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. We might have some people that like to you know, 
do some snake handling. <laughs> well, that's where I was going with this. I've been in that. And the, and, and the <laughs> truth. You don't believe in that? <laughs> not tonight, I don't. Maybe next week. <laughs> And the truth is, is that this, this end of Mark right here is one of those uh, controversial passages of Scripture that is not located in some of the original or close to original manuscripts that we have. And so some people think that it was added anyway. But you get down to the end of it. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven, sat down. Let's see, that's too late. Uh, go into all the world, proclaim the gospel. Whoever, whoever believes is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. So, for some denominations, for some strain of churches, that has become a full-blown doctrine upon which everything they believe revolves around. And we're we're maybe picking on them a little bit, talking about snake-handling churches, but they've taken something completely out of context and built their whole existence on it. I mean, you've seen documentaries, you've seen these things on 2020 or 60 Minutes or whatever they are, where uh, people get interviewed and people have been bitten by these poison snakes uh, X number of times because they see that as being a test of their spirituality. And that's the only place in Scripture you can make that case other than in Acts where Paul was shipwrecked and, and was bitten by a serpent and shook it off and went on. And, and God, in fact, that's what, you know, that's how that moves into this particular one is that they say, well, that's what happened to Paul. He was bitten by a snake and when he wasn't affected by it, shook it off into the fire and went on about his business. People there were so enthralled by that that they became believers, you know, and so that's what they're saying and advocating uh, for their belief. But that's a false doctrine. There's no other support for that anywhere. Um, we're going to get into it in a few minutes, but another false doctrine that, that's huge out there that I think is infant baptism. Um, there's a lot of a lot of cases made, a lot of a lot of denominations adhere to it. Uh, it's a huge deal for uh, for many, and yet they will themselves admit. And I'm going to read from uh, from one of the uh, most renowned uh, theologians that supports it, who admits on three points that there's no scriptural evidence for what they believe. So you know it's hard for me to pay serious attention to somebody say that it still could be a biblical teaching when it's not in the Bible, you know, when it's not there. So false doctrine, pragmatism, pragmatism is huge today. What's pragmatism in the church? Pragmatism is an American philosophy that was, came about the turn of the 20th century, which trying to make something really long, really short, it's a something that should be done because it's effective. Right. The bottom line, you know, the, the end justifies the means. Uh, applied to church life. And we Baptists, we've led the way and carried the flag for years. That whatever it takes, you know, we have we have sold our soul for church growth, we call it. Well, church growth is when we go out and we add people to our roles or we we bring people through the baptismal waters and we grow our churches bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, and anything that it takes to do that, 
we think is justified that well it works so let's keep doing it but that's not biblical is it I mean the Bible's given us clearly the things that we're supposed to do as a church and when we do those things then the Bible says that God will give the growth that God's the one that grows the church not us and our formulas um, and we've all got sucked into it we've all gotten drawn into this because that's the rage and we live in an area right now we live in you know I don't know if we even have a Bible Belt anymore but Atlanta if there's a Bible Belt anymore Atlanta's the buckle on the belt right mm -hmm. and and you've got churches around here that that are we call them mega churches uh, and I'm not I don't want to lump them all in that category but the bottom line is that we have a lot of churches that are doing whatever it takes to bring people into their church and that is tagged as success when in fact much like you you know in the later years and conversations with Billy Graham and, and his crusade ministry they would tell you that the, the statistics going back after they did crusades and they had thousands of people maybe make professions of faith that you know six months a year two years later they couldn't find a lot of those people that made professions that and the church of today in America is doing much the same thing we're we are selling our soul for statistics, fooling ourselves and making ourselves believe that we're actually progressing and making the kingdom expand when in fact, we're probably just do, jumping through some hoops here to impress ourselves and make ourselves feel better. Um, in fact, if you really want to be truthful about it, if you read the New Testament, that's not even the picture that the Bible lays out for the end of times, is it? It's not where we're headed talks about apostasy it talks about people turning away from the faith in such droves so much that if God didn't shorten the days it says that even the very elect would be deceived right now what the Bible teaches this is a big moment now false teaching or truth I'm gonna tell you I'll make it easy for you it's true <clears throat> Right preaching of the word means taking the word of God as it is in the context in which it was given and holding those things tightly to make sure that we're not making it mean something that we want it to mean or that we don't want it to mean, but that we take it for what it says, that we do it in the context of a, an entire narrative, that the whole thing is working together, all of it. We don't take out parts of it and hold it out here separate from the rest of it but that we hold it together and we say okay we've got things going on here and this is all tying together in one story one redemptive historical story that God is telling us how he is taking the mess that occurred in the Garden of Eden and how he is re reversing that and bringing us back to a new garden a new city a new Jerusalem and restoring what was lost or forfeited then Right administration of the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. So what do we mean? We've talked a little bit about that. I don't know that we need to get too much more into it unless you've got questions. <clears throat> um, you know, sacraments are important that they be administered rightly. And this is something we, we wrestle with a lot here because we, uh, I'll give you a for instance. Years ago when I first came here, we did something... Uh, we were doing uh, a Christmas Eve communion service. Maybe, any of you remember that? Mm -hmm. uh, 
Um, any idea why we stopped doing them? Well, we had a bunch of believers that would come in, uh, excuse me, unbelievers, or, or put it this way, um, folks that were outside of our membership that we didn't understand uh, that followed our beliefs, if you will. Uh, that's right. We had, that was a night where we had a lot of people from the community or family members coming. Uh, and so there were some positive things about it, but the negative thing is, is that we were putting before these people, whether we, whether we knew they were believers or not, a temptation, if you will, mm -hmm. to participate in something that may not belong to them. Mm -hmm. The Lord's Supper is for real believers, true believers that are in fellowship with Christ, not those that are just pretending, but those that are in true fellowship. So we felt like it was an unhealthy thing for us to do on that particular occasion. And so we've moved it to gatherings of the body, you know, the body. Now, we're not particular here. If you're coming from a church of like faith and practice, we don't deny that you can participate in the Lord's Supper with us if you want. Uh, that's your call. But we do ask that you be in a relationship with the Lord and that you be in good fellowship with the Lord, that you be in right standing with Him. Because uh, we're all universally one body, right? But to bring in people that we know are outside the faith and to have a Lord's Supper just doesn't. That doesn't seem to be right, so we, we didn't do that anymore. So right administration of the sacraments. We Anytime we make any changes to it, we try to look carefully at, okay, what are we doing that we're not just doing something that's pragmatic, you know, something that will feel fresh and new for us that, you know, renews our interest in it or whatever, but that we stick to the, we stick to the way the Scripture has laid it out and, and celebrate it in that fashion that it's, it's about the heart and our condition before God. False and true churches today. Is the Roman Catholic Church a true church today? <clears throat> Nobody wants to take that one, do you? As you look, if you look, okay, now I want you to hear the distinction here. You may know someone who is a Roman Catholic that is a sincere and genuine believer in Christ. I, I don't have any doubt. I do have concerns about someone that has a genuine relationship with Christ that still feels fulfilled and, and sanctified by participating in the rituals that are the Roman Catholic Church. But if you go and investigate the claims of the Roman Catholic Church and the positions, it's very hard to make a case that the Roman Catholic Church is a vibrant, true church. Hard. I didn't say impossible, but hard. You may find one somewhere that's focused in the right direction. But the very fact that if you celebrate Mass, to me, that's a huge disqualifier. Because the, the sacrifice has been completed. There's no need to redo it every week. Okay, the, the Lord's Supper, taking in the elements of the Lord's Supper does not save anyone. What do we say about the elements? heard me say if you've heard me say it once you've heard me say it a thousand times symbolic symbolic it's symbolic it's a picture it's an outward proclamation of something that's happened on the inside that's spiritual not something you take into the body that changes you spiritually but it is an outward picture it's like preaching a, a, a message it's like giving a testimony I belong to Christ I'm identifying with Christ I want everybody to know I'm 
I'm doing this. I'm celebrating that my sin has been forgiven because of Christ, that I have power over sin in my life now through Christ, and that one day I'm going to be delivered beyond sin when Christ returns again. Okay? So other true churches. I mean, I agree with Gruden. He said it's very difficult to nail down a whole denomination, and that's true. I, I, and that's why I leave the door cracked. You may find a church that's running, um, being a little bit rebellious toward its own denomination and doing its own thing. Um, same thing holds in every denomination, even in ours. There, there are churches in our denomination that are false churches, in my estimation. They've gotten sucked into pragmatism or... You know, they're not rightly preaching the Word of God. They're not observing, uh, administering the, the, uh, the sacraments or the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and baptism correctly. Um, so, that's that. Uh, others, the Mormons, you, you realize the Mormons are a cult, right? They're not our church. Uh, I don't care how many advertisements they run about another testament of Jesus Christ. You realize that's not true, right? Anybody have, anybody have a problem with that? Unfortunately, they're some of the nicest people in the world. They are. They're nice. They're family-oriented. They're moral, uh, but they're lost. They believe the wrong things. And what you need to hear about some of these denominations is that that what the the framework that is dictating what they believe as a denomination or as a church is being determined by maybe a few people at the top. And some of, the, some of the ground troops don't really know. They're much like us. They don't know what they believe. You go back to the days of the Reformation, and, I mean, what was, what was Luther's big issue? What led Luther, I mean, really finally to nail the 95 Theses to the door and say, enough's enough? Indulgences. Indulgences, which is what? A word. That was the... That was the uh, that was the pra the false practice of allowing parishioners to uh, to give money so that it would free their loved ones from purgatory. Yeah, they were buying people out of a place out of hell. Yeah, out of, <laughs> they were buying forgiveness for their loved ones. But what was at the real heart of it? The Word of God was written in Latin. Nobody sitting in the pews in the churches spoke or read Latin. The only people that read Latin were the priests. And the priests were just telling them what they needed to hear. You don't need to read this for yourself. I'll tell you what you need to know. And so they were appropriating. They actually were standing in, you know, a vicar stands as a representative for God. I mean, you know, that's a bigger issue altogether as well. But, but standing there and being the spokesman for God and not speaking the word of God necessarily, but speaking what people you thought need to hear in your own wisdom. So they became God. They set themselves up as false gods. So when you come to, to this church to this day, you know, I expect and I assume on any given Sunday when I get in the pulpit that you have your Bible with you. That you're not just going to take my word for it when I say, well, this is what it says. But that you're following along and you say, that's not what it says there. Or does it really mean what you said it meant right there? 
It's one of the reasons that I study so much week by week is because I want to make sure that when I stand before you, I'm rightly dividing the Word of God and not speaking for God. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, false churches. Others, we could call a lot of names. I won't get into it. Some of them might strike a little bit too close at home. Um, but if you want to know offline, I'll talk to you after class. If you're afraid that you've been listening to somebody that you shouldn't be listening to, listen. I'll tell you offline. Uh, I don't know that I want to call him out other than Joel Osteen. I wouldn't listen to him. Um, you're saying he's bad? I'm saying that Joel wouldn't know the gospel if it tap danced across his nose. <laughs> and he's, he, he has proven it. He has proven it. He has been asked and interviewed on television time after time after time. He does not believe that people are sinners and in need of salvation, and he cannot articulate the gospel. He's a false teacher. You can smile all you want to, but you're going to lead people, a smiling little party, right straight into the gates of hell. And, and it's, it's a sad thing. They have 35 to 40,000 people walking onto their campus every weekend to a Pied Piper who is working for the Antichrist. He's not working for Christ. He's padding and lining his pockets. He's selling books that are the same thing, the same sermon over and over and over with a new jacket on it. He's a false teacher. And I could give you some more that are closer at home, but I won't yeah, do that. I'm going to stop with that. Preaching huh? I call his preaching, preaching He's not even Bible. preaching. He's doing therapy. He's doing therapy from the pulpit. Seminar therapy from the pulpit. And I'm going to tell you, I've done enough counseling to tell you, you cannot, you cannot be therapeutic with 10,000 people in a room. You cannot do it. All right. Coming back down off the soapbox. Who asked me about that? You started that. You did a good job. You did. You said Joel Osteen. <laughs> the purity and unity of the church. How should we think about the purity of the church? We should think about it doctrinally. And I've been making this case to you as we've been making our way through this study. Is that one of the reasons we're doing this, one of the reasons Luke is doing it with the young people is that we want our church to be as pure as it can possibly be. We want to be solid. We want to be rightly dividing the word. We want our people to know that just like in the bank, if you have got a teller coming in to train, they don't spend time training that teller how to recognize counterfeit money, do they? They teach that teller how to recognize real money. And if they learn to recognize real money, spotting the counterfeit will be easy. The same thing is true when it comes to spiritual truth. We want to focus on, on the doctrines that are, that are true, that are established in the Word of God, so that when the false comes, because the false may change. It's going to change its, its trappings, its clothing. But if you are familiar with the real stuff, you won't be led astray by it. And so it's important for us to do that. Paul, if you'll notice, there were two letters that Paul wrote that had incredible commendation commendation for the church. Philippians was one of them, and 1 Thessalonians the other. Paul was excited about what was going on in those churches. And he complimented them on what they believed and how they were going about living their lives. Okay, So we have to believe, based upon what he said, they had very few doctrinal problems. Compare that to the letters he wrote to the Corinthians. 
the carnalitans, you know? You, you compare those, and it's not even in the same league, you know? I mean, he was dealing with one issue right on top of the other with the Corinthians. But when it came to the Philippians and Thessalonians, he said, man, these guys, I'm proud of you guys. You're heading in the right direction. So that's how we ought to think about the purity of the church, getting our doctrine correct. If we get the doctrine correct, everything else will fall into place. Our mission, our mission, and how we go about doing our methodology, all those things will fall into place if our doctrine's straight. Um, what about the Galatians? <laughs> you foolish Galatians. Who, you foolish, you? who has bewitched you? I mean, if we put that in English language and I got up and preached that Sunday morning, everyone would get up and leave. <laughs> I'm not kidding. That's how strong it was and how personal it was when he wrote to them. In other words, you bunch of morons. Mm -hmm. How could you be so stupid? You know, I've just left you. Why is it that you're so easily duped by a false teaching now? That's what he was saying to them. And I'm still pulling punches. It would have been a lot worse. The purity of the church is its degree of freedom from wrong doctrine. The purity of the church is its degree of freedom from wrong doctrine and conduct and its degree of conformity to God's revealed will for the church. So you've got high purity, you've got strong biblical doctrine, proper observance of ordinances, right use of church discipline, genuine worship, effective prayer, effective witnessing, personal holiness of life among members, care for the poor, and love for Christ. Those are the kind of characteristics that you see in a church that has its doctrine right. When its doctrine's right, it behaves right. Right? All right, unity of the church is its degree of freedom from divisions among true Christians. John 10, 16, the Lord said there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Uh, John 17, 21, which we're coming up to, Jesus prays for future believers that they may all be one in unity. Believers are to remain separate from unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 7, 1. I think I touched on that some last week, so I'm going to keep moving. The purpose of the church. Now, Grudem gave you three purposes. Ministry to God, he called it, or worship. Ministry to believers, or nurturing. Or ministry to the world, which is evangelism and mercy. He said, basically, those are the three uh, purposes for the church. I, I'm going to expand on that. I don't disagree with him, but I think I think I think it's a little bit too simplistic. Worship, evangelism, uh, discipleship, ministry, fellowship, prayer. Six primary things that the church needs to be about. Lots of things that churches assume or try to be about. But these are the things that you find in the scripture when you read the, when you read the New Testament, when you read the whole Bible, that these are the things God's people ought to be engaged in. Uh, and within each of these broad categories, if you're talking about ministry, you're talking about you know caring for the poor, for the widows, things of that nature. Fellowship is the uh, the 
interdependence that's in the body, you know, sharing. Uh, and our church is going through something right now that I think God is strengthening our fellowship because of some of the things that um, various parts of our church are dealing with and how they're learning that we can trust one another with these things and pray for one another and encourage one another and stand with one another uh, and serve one another in those things. And until, when you live in a culture like we live in that is so uh, blatantly affluent and materialistic, this is a hard lesson for us to gain. Uh, he's, he's had to knock some props out from under us to teach us that we need each other, that, that you know our material possessions, our, our affluence is not what's going to get us through. It's going to take each other and, and our trust and fellowship of Christ. I mean, obviously prayer, uh, discipleship, uh, it's encouraging to me. Our spiritual reforma our spiritual reformation, our spiritual formation team is working on a plan to strengthen our discipleship. You know, we have small groups, we have Bible studies going on, we have uh, teaching and preaching uh, when we gather together here as a church. But one of the weak spots, as they've diagnosed, is that we don't have a lot of one-on-one -on -one mentoring, discipleship type type of relationships going on, and they're going to put. Uh, some things in place to help us move towards strengthening that, which is going to help us in the long term. We get our doctrine right, our behavior gets right, right? Evangelism, another place that we're very weak on as a church, and some of that, you know, you can blame a lot of things for that, but um, one of the main things, I think, is that we've been intimidated by the culture we live in, that we're supposed to stay quiet and silent and keep it to ourselves, and and, you know, we need to start rocking and rolling a little bit when it comes to sharing our faith. Um, one of our guys that goes across the street to mentor over in the elementary school told me this week that he had a very engaging conversation with all those young men about, and he started sharing Christ with him. He asked him what he knew about him. And, well, he knew of him, but he didn't know much about him. Well, would you like to know more? And he said, you wouldn't believe the expression on this kid and his body language as I began to share with him about who Christ is. And I asked him when we finished, if he'd like to know some more, and he didn't hesitate, he said yes. So we're going to do it again next week. And he said, am I going to get in trouble? And I said, well, let's hope not. <laughs> we'll keep praying. We'll keep praying. I said, make sure he knows that he can stop you if he, if he doesn't want to hear anymore. Uh, that's all we can do. But taking that next step, that's good. And, of course, worship. These are the things the church needs to be engaged in doing. All right? principles of believers 